Hey friends, Alan Duty here, preaching pastor at New Life. We're delighted to bring you this sermon from our Sunday gathering. For more information or to support our ministry, visit us online at newlifecs.net. Thank you and enjoy the following message. Good morning. We have truly arrived at the bottom of the batting order because I stand before you today. But it is my pleasure that we will welcome back Pastor Allen next week. Come on, Allen, let's go. All right. On February 16th, 1973, Jerry Belson brought to the American conscience a deep, and meaningful modern proverb that he wrote into the script of The Odd Couple that has resonated with millions over the last 48 years. Never assume, because when you assume, you make, oh boy, (laughs) Balaam's donkey out of you and me. At least it went something like that. There's a good reason that sayings like that take a leg on life and find find a place in our minds over time. And some of that has to do with humor. Much of it has to do with truth and shared experience. Who here has not made a wrong assumption about someone else or been on the receiving end of a false assumption made about you? It doesn't feel very good, and generally it does not help that relationship. And sometimes our assumptions can have catastrophic consequences. When we make assumptions, we're operating on incomplete information. Only God has a luxury of never making an assumption because he is all-knowing. But for us, assumptions are a necessary evil. We use assumptions to help us discover scientific truths. We make assumptions when we build and design projects. I make assumptions when I'm diagnosing my patients' illnesses or prescribing their treatments. But when it comes to interpersonal relationships, assumptions are a tricky business. Fallen beings making assumptions about other fallen beings is fraught with peril and a risk for ruining those relationships and our witness is high. And this is particularly true in the Christian church. Thankfully, God gives us guidance through his word and through his example of the Israelites to learn how to and how not to govern our assumptions and relationships. In Joshua 22, we find ourselves at the end of war. For those of you who have Numbers 32 memorized, You'll recall that most of the Israeli tribes plan to reside on the west side of the Jordan in Canaan, but the Reubenites, the Gadites, and a half-tribe of Manasseh asked to be allotted land on the east side of the Jordan. Every family has that family member who just has to be a little different. Amen? (laughs) God granted them this request on a condition that the men would leave their wives and children on the east side of the Jordan and go and fight uh, to the west with the rest of the tribes as Israel took over Canaan. And Pastor Allen noted at the beginning of this series that this was an act of faith and obedience by these men of these tribes as it left their families vulnerable and unprotected on the east side. But God was faithful to provide. Now all that fighting is done, and it's time to go home, and Joshua gives them this charge in verse 5. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And following in verse 8, this blessing, go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, silver, gold, bronze, and iron with, with much clothing, just as Caleb just read. We cannot overlook here yet another reminder of God's greatest commandment, 
that when we cling to him and when we're willing to follow him wherever he takes us in faith, we can count on his faithfulness guaranteed by his power and grace to bless us in our obedience to him. But let's move on from that and let's get a view of things from the perspective of the Western tribes by looking at verses 10 through 20. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and a half tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and a half tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, and every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. So what's happening here? Reuben, Gad, and a half-tribe go their way, and they decide to build an altar of imposing size on the west side of the river. Not their side, the west side. And when the western tribes hear about this, what is their immediate reaction? Do they think to themselves, oh, Reuben, Gad, and HT, they fought with us faithfully and valiantly all these years. They must have a good reason for this. Absolutely not. This altar must have been something like a Texas Longhorn building a life-size replica of the UT Tower in the middle of Kyle Field. Because what do they do? They're ready to go to war. They just finished war. They're ready to go right back. They assume the worst about their brothers and sisters, that they've gone completely wayward from the Lord. They put together an envoy led by Phinehas and level accusations, assuming that they've rebelled against him by building this monstrosity and subjecting all of Israel to peril by stoking God's wrath. And they invoke the sin of Peor and Achan in making these accusations. Now, context is key in understanding what's on the mind of Phinehas and this Western delegation. So Phinehas is a priest, and he has fresh on his mind this sin at Peor. And this is a reference to Numbers 25. In Numbers 25, the Israelites have strayed, and they've engaged in worship of Baal at Peor. And the Lord was so incensed with this that he commanded Moses to execute all the leaders and brought a plague upon the people that cost 24,000 lives. God's anger was finally quelled by the actions of one person, 
who in his zeal to cleanse Israel of her sin against God, rose up and killed a man and a woman who flaunted their choice to live in a rebellion against God while Israel was being scourged. And that person was Phinehas. So Phinehas avoided the, averted the Lord's anger by this action, and he's the leader of this congregation. Secondly, he invokes the sin at Achan from Joshua 7, where Achan withhold spoils from the defeat of Jericho for himself that were supposed to be destroyed, and that sin results in a costly and embarrassing defeat at Ai. The Western Israelites basically are worried well for themselves and for their brothers, and with these sins freshly on mind, they don't want punishment to befall themselves or their brothers due to rebellion against the Lord. Clearly, they've learned their lessons from their own experience with the sin and their consequences, and their motives for confronting these two and a half tribes are good, but their assumptions are not. Now, let's get a view of things from the perspective of the eastern tribes. So we're going to read verses 21 through 29. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and a half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, The Mighty One, God, the Lord. The Mighty One, God, the Lord. He knows and let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today. For building an altar to turn away from, the following, from following the Lord... Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You people of Reuben, you people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said... Let us now build an altar, not for a burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you, and between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings, so your children will not have to say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the, alt of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings or for sacrifice, but to be a witness between you, us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for the burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord, our God, our God that stands before his tabernacle." So what do the eastern tribes have to say in response to this accusation from the western delegation? The mighty one, God, the Lord. They invoke the Lord himself to their brothers and make their case. They're quick to point out that this was not an act of rebellion. Furthermore, in humility, they say that if they were enacting in rebellion, then they deserve what they have coming to them. And they appeal to the western delegation to look at their hearts rather than making assumptions about their actions. The eastern tribes have to be shocked by these accusations and this show of force from the western delegation. Could you really assume anything worse about brothers who have spilt blood and left family behind than to imply that they're essentially equal to the pagans that they have just been fighting to defeat? Yet note how they react. They react with humility, with deference to God, and with an appeal to see their heart in the matter. They want western Israel to look up beyond appearances and see what's underneath. We should note, however, why the Eastern tribes built this altar in the first place. They did this out of fear of man. 
They feared that over time, their Western brothers would turn against them since they were separated by the Jordan River. And their intentions were good in setting up this altar of witness. They wanted to preserve unity based on their heritage despite the physical separation. But their reasons for doing so, their fear of man and their assumptions about their brothers, lack of future faithfulness led to conflict and misunderstanding. Basically, both tribes are culpable for this misunderstanding. The West made assumptions about the East and confronted them out of fear of God that they'd be destroyed. And the East made assumptions about the West based on fear of man, and they built this altar so that they would not be forgotten. Each side's intentions are good, godly in fact, but their assumptions about each other are not. And this could have led to catastrophe for the Israelites, just as it can for the modern church. So let's step back and take a look at this from the perspective of both sides. We should note that this is a confrontation occurring between God's people. This is not an altercation between Israel and a secular people. And therefore, if we're caring for a lesson, it would have to do with how believers, God's people, the people of the church, the people of this church, interact with each other. And the Bible has something to say about that. So do we have license to confront others within the church when we are concerned about sin in their lives? Did Israel have grounds to confront the two and a half tribes about their concern about them drifting into sin? Absolutely. We not only have license, but command to bear each other's burdens against sin. Look at the scripture behind me. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul tells us that we have a mandate to restore our fallen brothers, but how are we to do that? In what spirit? A spirit of gentleness, with watchfulness on our own spirit. We're to bear each other's burdens. Let's look at what else the Bible has to say about confronting sin within a church. You see Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This time from Jesus himself, we're told that we're to go to other believers and tell them their fault. But how? With a heart to gain them back in a stair-step fashion that I would argue is to preserve dignity and allow space to gain understanding. And finally, in what context is this to be done? Are we to think differently about how we would confront other believers versus how we would confront non-Christians about sin? Absolutely. We live by a different standard, and we're to hold each other to it. Look at 1 Corinthians 5, 11 through 13. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. Is it not those whom inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. We are a body created by God, bound together by the Holy Spirit, and purchased by the blood of Christ. Paul tells us that spiritual things are spiritually discerned, and the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. We don't hold the world to the same standards that God holds us to, but as for us, 
we have the mind of Christ, and God has given us each other to try to steer each other straight when we wander. And when we do that, we need to remember the heart in which he himself deals with us as we sin. Finally, look at Hebrews 5.2. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. We're all weak, we're all prone to sin, and we must remember to deal with each other with gentleness and compassion. Let's apply this passage to ourselves. There's three main takeaways I want us to gain from this text this morning. Number one, godly motivation does not necessarily lead to godly action. Godly motivation does not necessarily lead to godly action. Number two, faulty assumptions based on fear rather than faith can fracture families and friendships. And number three, humble hearts can lead to happy endings. So let's take a look at all three of these. First point, godly motivation does not necessarily lead to godly action. So, Phinehas and the Western delegation have a genuine concern that their brothers have wandered into sin. They've also taken lessons from past experience about God's displeasure with sin among the ranks. And when they invoke the sin of Peor and the sin of Akon, they are worried about God's wrath and they're keen to avoid it. That's it. Western Israel definitely has a godly motivation based on godly fear. And it's clear that this delegation intends to avoid catastrophe by not allowing sin to stand unchecked among God's people. Now, likewise, the eastern tribes had a godly motivation to preserve unity within Western Israel. They did not want unity to dissolve based on the decision they made to stay on the east side of the Jordan. But they acted presumptuously. Rather than talking to their brothers and sisters and addressing their concerns from the front, they took it upon themselves to build this altar and assume that it would communicate their concerns, and that was totally misunderstood. The action they took to build this altar of witness with good intention and godly motivation had the exact opposite outcome that they intended, and it nearly resulted in sin and destruction for both of them. Church, if it's not obvious, we are no less prone to these mistakes than our ancestors were thousands of years ago. From the beginning, we've been prone to try to accomplish the right thing with the wrong actions. We might have the holiest motives when it comes down to the things we do, but if we don't slow down, seek the Lord, and let God be our guide before we act, we run a big risk of taking those holy motives down the wrong road and ending up exactly where we don't intend to go. So how do we mix godly motives with godly action? Well, part of the answer is right here in the text. Look back at Joshua 22.5. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways, to cling to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it's all over the Bible. That's the first half of the two greatest commandments. Look behind me at Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? He said to him, You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. When it comes to doing things the right way, church, and I'm preaching this to myself here, we need to mix love of God with love of neighbor. 
One without the other does not create a recipe for success. We need to pray first, act later, care for each other in the ways that we want to be cared for ourselves. And when we follow one command without the other, our altar of witness before God and others stands to send the wrong message. Let's move on to the second takeaway from this passage. Faulty assumptions based on fear rather than faith can fracture families and friendships. As we've seen, both sides end up with mud on their faces based on faulty assumptions they made about each other. Both sides made these assumptions based on fear. The West feared God based on the consequences of sin among the tribe. The consequences from these assumptions could have been dire as the West gathered a war party. Sending Phinehas as the chief of the delegation was a clear message that Western Israel meant business. It would not have been lost on Reuben, Gad, and a half-tribe what he had done to turn back God's wrath back in Numbers 23, and that he was there to do exactly the same thing to them if things got sideways. This delegation had a healthy fear of God's wrath, but that fear superseded their faith in God's rule among his people and caused them to bear false witness about their brothers. This easily could have led to a fracture in their relationship. And on the eastern side, they feared what would come over time from the larger western tribes. Would their faithfulness to fight with their brothers be forgotten? Would they be seen as different, as outsiders, treated as foreign people? Their fear of man superseded their, fear, their faith that God was sovereign over their protection and their identity as God's people and caused them to bear false witness about their brothers. And building this altar all but convinced the Western tribes that they had betrayed their faith and just become just like everyone else. To them, this altar could have easily had the appearance of something that any pagan might have erected for worship. And at the very least, they knew that God was to be worshipped on his terms, in his place, on his altar, not wherever anyone else just decided to make one. And this altar was built on their land, nonetheless. The actions of the Eastern tribes, based on fear rather than faith, led to false assumptions that ran the risk of fracturing their relationship with the West. So as we turn the mirror on ourselves, how often do we make faulty assumptions about each other as believers based on fear or pride or selfishness or anything else other than faith? Who here has not fired off a hasty email or posted something on social media based on some assumption about something that was said or, sit, uh, or done only to find out later that that assumption was totally off base? I've done it. Who here has fractured a relationship with a friend or a family by saying something that you assumed was true that wasn't? Who among us has passed judgment on someone else based on some assumption and faded away from that relationship without saying anything? Friends, this happens all the time. And it's a key way that we blend in with the world rather than living different from it. And we need to learn to live together guided by faith. We are a body bound together by faith with Christ as the head and we need to be careful to preserve our witness in our interactions with one another as well as the world. Rather than assume the worst about what someone else means and what they have said or done, we need to pray. Go to your brother or sister and love. Have a conversation. Love God and love others. These are the two greatest commandments. If a brother or sister does something that sits the wrong way with you or you have a concern, pray and go to them in love and seek understanding you might find that your assumptions are correct and have opportunity to bring that brother or sister back to the right path. And this brings glory to the Lord. Look at James 5, 19. 
My brothers, and if, any, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Otherwise, without prudence and patience, godly love, we might find ourselves on the wrong side of Jesus' warning in Matthew 7. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take this speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Let's be mindful not to fracture our relationships due to fear rather than faith. Final takeaway from this passage for us this morning. Humble hearts can lead to happy endings. I said can, not will. While there is plenty to criticize on each side of this story, there's plenty for us to learn about what they did right. While the Western tribes erred in making false assumptions, it's amazing to see their humility and earnestness to avoid conflict and God's wrath in their appeal to the Eastern tribes. Look back at verse 19. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. You have to love the heart that we see in this verse. Despite being totally off base, they are eager to gain back their brothers and avoid disaster. Hey guys, if it's not working out for you over there, come settle over here. Just don't go down this path of destruction. What an invitation. And you get a sense that Western Israel is willing to do whatever they can to give whatever they can to help a wayward brother get on the right track. And it makes me think of the early church in Acts 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, and they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And they were not a, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. You get a real sense of that and how the West is addressing the East here. There is power in being humble enough to give whatever we have, time, talent, treasure, for the glory of God, whether it is to bring a lost sheep back into the fold or a new sheep into the flock. And likewise, we see remarkable humility from the Eastern tribes. Now, Anyone who knows me well enough knows that on the occasion when someone wrongs me, my flesh wants to go straight Finahas on that person. If the Western tribes are confronting me with this, Joshua 22:22, rather than starting with the mighty one, God the Lord, might have read something like, and the Eastern tribes said, come at me, bro. <laughs> to God's glory, he is greater than our pride and our arrogance. And humility comprises the heart of a godly people. Look at how they react to these false accusations. They invoke the Lord, their common ground. They acknowledge the concern of their brothers. 
they invite the punishment that is due them if the things are true. And they explain the heart behind their actions. They didn't react out of anger or hurt or emotion. And they didn't fight fire with fire or seek an eye for an eye. They met this war party with humility and deference and respect. And in doing so, they acted out of faith rather than fear. And for this, God blessed the humble hearts of both parties. Let's finish this passage by reading Joshua 22, verses 30 through 34. When Phinehas, the priest, and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst, because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest and chiefs, returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and in the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan to the people of Israel and brought back word to them. And a report was good in their eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. And the people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness with a capital W, for they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. The happy ending here is that both sides understand from the way that this interaction is resolved that God is in their midst, that he has delivered them from his wrath. And it was good. Isn't that what we feel when we're able to peacefully resolve conflict amongst ourselves? It's good. And it often feels like God is right there in the midst of it. Friends, I think we have lots to learn from the positive things that occur in this passage. I certainly do. It's hard to be willing to sacrifice what's dear to you for the good of another brother or sister. That's spirit-led work. It's hard to be wronged by someone else and meet that with humility and seek understanding. That's spirit-led work. But friends, what if this is what truly marked us as believers, as followers of Christ in our daily walk? What if the world looked at Christ's followers and saw people truly sold out to turning the other cheek, giving all that they have for the good of those around him because of, the love, of their love for the Lord? What if those around us in our community knew new life as a place of witness with a capital W, where its members are marked by otherworldly love for each other and for the lost, a place of humble, prayerful people whose love for God and love for neighbors supersedes everything else, living in community together and working together for the advance of the gospel. Friends, that's where growth happens, and that's where you see people come and get their lives changed, that's where addictions are cast aside, and that's where marriages are restored, and that's where souls are saved because God is in their midst. If you're here today and you're seeking change in your life, and if you're looking for peace or fulfillment or purpose, or you've come here looking for people that can provide that for you, you've come to the wrong place. The truth is this, the church, just like the Israelites we've been talking about this morning, is composed of broken, messed up people. Every one of us are sinners, and not every one of us is perfect. Not one of us is perfect. 
If you'll be honest and take a look inside, you'll probably find yourself no different. The good news is this, that no matter what you've done wrong in your life or what you'll ever do to yourselves, to others, to God, there's a place for you in God's kingdom, and this is where we meet. We're here today because God has offered total forgiveness to each of us through the death of his perfect son, Jesus, on the cross and his resurrection. And if you have not received that forgiveness by accepting that truth and faith, then you're going to miss out on whatever you're here looking for. And if you'd like to learn more about having a relationship with God or are ready to profess faith in Christ today, find any one of the broken, messed up people around you. And for your kids out there, that does include your parents. And we'd love to talk more about it with you. Friends, I've been serving New Life as an elder for about 15 months. I've been stretched and challenged and burdened in ways I didn't know I could. And when I read this passage, I see so many things that speak to me personally and to what I see in our church. We have gone through a lot of challenges together in this past year. And this passage encourages me to remember that we are God's people and that he is our king and our good shepherd. And we have a lot to learn about how we live together. When we have issues with each other, whether it be related to how a church should be governed or led, what we think about race or politics or justice, whatever blunder of the week the elders have made, the church budget, streaming or not streaming, masking or not masking, wine versus juice, who should we appoint as elders, whatever else might come, we need to remember to be people identified by our love of God and love of neighbor. And we must be mindful of our assumptions and our actions. We need to pray first, be humble, talk to each other, and let our love for one another be our altar of witness. Let's aspire to that and find God in our midst. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for speaking to us this morning through your word. It's so good to see in your word, Lord, that comes from a perfect and holy God, how we should live and how we should not live through the examples of the imperfect beings that we are. God, we have much to learn about how to honor you, how to love you, how to follow your commands. And because of what you have done in our lives, Lord, we want to do those things. God, give us wisdom and give us strength, give us humility, and give us insight into how to love you well and be an altar of witness both to each other and to those around us who don't know you yet. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from New Life Baptist Church in College Station, Texas. For more information or to support our ministry, visit us online at newlifecs.net.